Hello and welcome to this edition of the Screen Podcast, which is the podcast for the global screen business publication, Screen International. I'm Matt Mueller, Screen's editor, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the shortlists of 15 international and 15 documentary features that were revealed on December 21st to be advancing to the next stage of voting in the Oscars race. The shortlist for these two categories are always hugely anticipated, and there were a few surprises in both this year, which is always par for the course. Ampass also unveiled the shortlists for eight other categories, including original score and visual effects. We'll also take a brief look at those. After that discussion, Danish filmmaker Jonas Poher Rasmussen, whose animated documentary Flea has made both the international and the documentary shortlists, spoke to Screens Reviews editor Finn Halligan last week. So keep listening to hear Finn's interview with Jonas. But first, for today's discussion on the Oscar shortlist, I'm joined today by my illustrious colleagues, Jeremy Kay, Screens America's editor, and Charles Gant, our awards and box office editor. So welcome, Jeremy and Charles. Let's start by looking at the international feature shortlist. And of course, the omission of one film in particular that is startling by its absence, but at the same time, not entirely surprising, Titan. What are your thoughts on the fact that that didn't make the shortlist of a 15 films? Well, I mean, I have to say I wasn't totally surprised in that, you know, hands up, I didn't really get Titan or Titan. And I think that France would have been much better advised to pick Audrey Duane's film Happening, which won the Golden Lion at Venice, which I think is a fantastic film. And I thought a film that really was likely to kind of chime with the Academy voters. But Titan was obviously just, you know, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It's got huge critical support, but it is a very adventurous choice, I think, for your typical Academy voter. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I don't think Academy voters respond well to really extreme storytelling you know anything that's violent i mean you know kudos to uh, to it for being you know so out there and such an audacious vision but yeah as i say and i agree with you charles i just don't think that always flies with the academy so I, i'm also i'm not surprised i'm not surprised it wasn't there so it was a gamble by the by the French Academy that didn't pay off. But looking at the films that did make the list, uh, certainly there's some that we we certainly expected to be there. I mean, one of them being Drive My Car by Ryosuke Hamaguchi, which has come in with quite a bit of momentum. I mean, it's recently won the best film from both the LA and the New York Film Critics Awards. So that's one we definitely expected to see there, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. And that seems to be hitting its stride at a really good time with voters now. As you say, it's getting it's getting traction here in the US. And uh, it's definitely being spoken of as a really strong piece of work. I think we gave it a very good review. It's had good reviews across the board, but it's about timing, isn't it? And I think this one is just hitting its stride maybe just at the right time now. Everyone's aware of it. And as we go into the next stage of voting for the nominations, I think um, a lot of people will be curious to see it if they haven't already done so. And what are some of the other ones that stand out to you, Charles, on this list? We have quite a few European contenders, don't we? We do indeed. We have 10 entries from Europe. Europe does traditionally dominate this shortlist, but I think it does so even more powerfully this year. And I think it's quite incredible when you think Scandinavia has got four entries, you know, Lamb from Iceland, Flea, as you mentioned, from Denmark, the worst person in the world from Norway, and compartment number six from Finland. Scandinavia has more entries than Asia, Middle East and Africa put together, which I think is, you know, an extraordinarily lopsided outcome. But having said that, I think all those four Scandinavian films are really good. I mean, I think the Joachim Trier's film from Norway is, is exceptional. I love Compartment Number 6 from Finland and I love Flea from Denmark. I mean, those are three of my favourites right there. 
And what about for you, Jeremy? I'm really pleased to see the uh, Panamanian film, which is in the now Plaza Catedral by Abner Benayim, which is really surprising. With all respect to Abner, you know, he's a, he's a really good filmmaker and he was surprised. I just got on the phone with him this morning. I was texting him furiously the last day or two and he's just over the moon. He didn't expect it. And I said, you know, how did you do it? Because this is one of only the few films on this shortlist that doesn't have US distribution. I think the other one is from Bhutan, which we should come to as well. But Abner had the help of a fair amount, of quite a high profile in Latin America. I believe it, it played at a Panama Film Festival, which was delayed due to COVID, it took place in December. It won the award there. And he has a top-notch award strategist and PR here in LA. I think I won't say their names. I don't know if that would be good right now, but we all know them and they are among the best in the business. So they did one physical screening in LA. They got out there in front of voters with some virtual screenings. I think we did one of our virtual screening events with them as well. And, um, you know, it's a solid film and I'm really pleased to see him on there. And the other one, of course, is um, Tatiana Huetzo's film from Mexico, Prayers for the Stolen, which is mostly controlled by Netflix around the world. I think Mubi have some territories too, but when you've got the backing of Netflix and they're, you know, they're high on one of their films, you've got all the support in the world. So well done to those two. Yeah, and of course the other key Netflix title that has made the list is uh, Paolo Sorrentino's The Hand of God, which is the Italian submission. I mean, none of us were surprised to see that make it through, and that certainly is one of the one of the front runners all the way to I think to, to Oscar night. A fantastic film which we've talked about on the podcast before. And then looking at some of the other European contenders, we you know we also had Spain's uh, submission, The Good Boss, make it through, which of course was submitted by the country over Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers. We have Germany's I'm Your Man, which is the Maria Schrader-directed film with Dan Stevens and Maren Eggert in it. And we also have Laura Wendell's Playground from Belgium and Sebastian Mize's Great Freedom from Austria, which are also films that I think we, we anticipated they might make it through. I was probably less certain about Playground, even though I think it's a wonderful, wonderful film. I think that um, the Austrian film had a lot of a lot of people were anticipating it would get nominated. I think Great Freedom is a really, really great film. Playground was one. I mean, we actually interviewed the director in, in our um, print weeklies and, and I watched the film and I was really glad that we did interview her. I think it's a really strong film about these two young siblings attending primary school together. And yeah, I can really see that that film, you know, it could hold a lot of sway with, with voters. And now, you know, to vote in the next round, you have to watch every one of these 15 films, you know, so I think anything is possible from this point going forward. Yeah, there's always a few surprises, right, that make it through to the final shortlist. I mean, last year, the man who sold his skin from Tunisia was probably mm -hmm. the, the surprise one that perhaps we weren't anticipating. But it's worth mentioning as well, uh, Jeremy, you mentioned um, the Panamanian entry. That's the first time for Panama to get through to this stage, but also the first time for Bhutan, for Lanana, A Yak in the Classroom, which actually premiered in 2019 at the BFI London Film Festival. So it's had a long journey to get here, was actually submitted last year and didn't make it through for reasons which, Charles, maybe you can explain. Yeah, so apparently the Academy will that the procedure that had picked that film in Bhutan uh, had not been approved by the Academy, that the committee, it was viewed as an, an irregular submission process. So clearly Bhutan have kind of gone through the hoops to make sure that their process is now secure and regular and approved by the Academy. They've resubmitted the film, it was accepted, and now it's on the shortlist. 
which they must be very excited about having uh, tried again for a second time and made it through. And then the other uh, first time entry is from Kosovo, which has uh, Hive uh, in contention on the 15 strong shortlist. So a really exciting list of, of films. We should also just briefly mention the Asghar Fahadi film from Iran, A Hero. Of course, as a two-time Oscar winner, I think he's obviously a strong contender with, with that film. Yeah, absolutely. He won before for both The Separation and The Salesman. So, I mean, if he wins this for, for a hero, it would be his third Oscar, which would be an incredible achievement. And we also have to mention Flea, of course, again, because that is not only on this international feature shortlist, but it's also on the documentary shortlist. And we can then move, should we move on to that next? What are your thoughts on uh, looking at that sort of list of the documentary features in terms of Certainly some big front runners we expected to make it through to this round, including the Summer of Soul, the Rescue, Flea, which we've now just mentioned. Any others that you definitely are very unsurprised to see on this list? I did strongly expect to see Todd Haynes as a Felver Underground on the list. So I wasn't hugely surprised to see that one. That was one that we picked uh, when we ran a, a feature on 50 films to see this Oscar season. And that was one of the few documentaries alongside flee some of soul and the rescue that, that we picked for that feature what about you jeremy i'm really thrilled to see writing with fire on this list you know when you look at this list six of them premiered in sundance which is always a great launch pad for documentaries and we look forward to seeing what they've got next month uh, in 2022 but writing with fire is this amazing film about this um, sort of dalit almost like the untouchable cast of uh, women in india who despite, you know, societal constraints, form this news organisation and go out and interview people. They interview men about violence, incredibly brave women. And it got picked up by Music Box. And I've noticed recently in the last few months, it's becoming, it's, it's coming onto lists. It's on the PGA, the Producers Guild of America's um, documentary list. It's also on the International Documentary Association list of nominees. So that's a great one. I think that's a, I'm really happy to see that. And um, I'm also happy to see Attica, which premiered in Toronto, which is about the prison protest in, in the 70s, and touches on racism, of course, such a strong touch point as it should be these days. But otherwise, there's a lot of films there that we did expect to see. I think it's a really strong list. It's always an incredibly competitive category, isn't it? And it just gets, seems to get more competitive every year with so many big players now in the, you know, in this sort of documentary feature production space. There are certainly some titles that didn't make it through. Some of those which we might have anticipated include Becoming Cousteau, Val, and one of the biggest omissions, or certainly a film we many of us might have expected to see on this list, could be Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. This is a, this is a film that, in terms of box office, was one of the most successful documentary feature in North America, but did have an AI controversy around its production, which was which was flagged early on. And do we think that possibly hurt its chances, Jeremy? What do you think? I think it's hard to say, but just to um, outline what this was all about, I think in the last summer it emerged that the director, Morgan Never, had used artificial intelligence to have Bourdain's voice recite three or so sentences of letters that he had actually written. And uh, this caused an outcry at the time. Um, I believe Bourdain's widow tweeted that she hadn't given prior authorization for it, or hadn't known this was going to happen. And in his defense, um, Morgan said, well, he'd used 10 hours of Bourdain's voice recordings and got it from that and, you know, let others decide on the ethics of that in the future. I personally don't have a problem with it. You know, you've, you've got these days, increasingly, you see filmmakers, documentary filmmakers using recreations to tell their story. And I, I personally, I, I really don't have an issue with it. But 
very hard to tell if that impacted on the voters decision yeah it could simply be a case of just too many great films in you know in the field to select from and you know inevitably some there are going to be some disappointments but one company which has uh, had decent success with this shortlist is apple which of course has two music themed documentaries through todd haynes's the velvet underground and rj cutler's Billie Eilish doc, she's also through to the best song shortlist for the No Time to Die theme tune. Uh, music documentaries, they do tend to do well. Summer of Soul, obviously, is one of the leading front runners. Any thoughts on the music docs? I think Summer of Soul is, is clearly such an important film. It's telling us about something that perhaps we didn't know. I think it's making really, really great points. It's, it, it's such an uplifting experience. And I think it's a film that sort of yeah, it has an emotional impact. And if you think back to My Octopus Teacher last year, which won, which I think was the film, whether you liked it or not, it definitely took people on an emotional journey. And I wonder whether Summer of Soul could actually play out in the same way this year. Yeah, I agree. It's a stunning film. It's personally my favourite movie of the year. And it's just interesting to see how the, um, the streamers are getting behind these kinds of movies, because you know, they can reach so many people. I believe the filmmakers are quite happy about that. You know, you've got Searchlight and Hulu on Summer of Soul. And as you say, Matt, Apple on the, the other two films. And I've totted up the numbers. I think streamers and broadcasters in the US have 10 of these 15 films on the documentary shortlist. And talking of streamers, I mean, Netflix has this film Procession, which is about these people using kind of theatrical reenactment to help them overcome their abuse at the hands of paedophile priests. And I think that that film also has a real emotional cathartic element to it. It's also formally quite interesting. A lot of these films are kind of interesting subject matter, but sort of not, you know, quite conventional maybe. And I think this film feels like it's doing something different, doing something sort of a little bit unexpected. And it does take people to a place that they're perhaps not expecting to end up. So I think that film could really resonate, certainly with the, um, the voting cohort who will be deciding the nominations. Yeah, there's also the MTV documentary entry, Ascension. Have either of you seen that? The one about the insight into the Chinese consumer and wealth culture? I'm really glad you mentioned this film. I'm a huge fan of Ascension. I saw it very recently. It's very much an observational fly on the wall film. But it really takes you into unexpected places. It takes you into sort of things that we might have seen before in Chinese factories, but also into, uh, you know, butler training school and sort of places where you kind of really, I'm amazed they kind of, oh, yeah, you see these women making these uh, sex dolls for the Western market. And, you know, it's a really very surprising places that you just can't imagine why the companies necessarily were happy to welcome in the cameras. But I think it's a, a really fascinating portrait of modern China. And I, I would love to see that film progressing to the next round. Well, I look forward to seeing that on that uh, recommendation alone and look forward to seeing many of the films on this list. So I've only seen a few of them. But um, what about the other categories that had their shortlists revealed as well? There were eight other categories, including original score, visual effects, original song. Any kind of initial thoughts on the films that have made it through to those lists? One thing that stood out to me was the fact that Belfast has been shortlisted for the sound category and also for original song. It seems to me that that is obviously a film now being seen by many, many AMPAS members. And therefore that to me indicates that it has very strong chances for the nomination phase in general. 
I would agree with you on that, Matt. I think if it's winning a shortlist place for sound, it, it's like, is there any category that it's not going to um, feature in? Spider-Man No Way Home, which also got for visual effects. I was just impressed that enough people had seen that film already. It's only really been available for a very, very short time. Clearly, it's the kind of film that you would expect to flourish in the highly technical categories like visual effects. But the fact that it's managed to get on the list in such a, such a short window of availability makes me wonder whether clearly people are actually are loving this film. It's huge at the box office, but could it actually be an awards film in other categories? I think you're right. I think going back to what you said about Docs, Charles, you know, I think uh, emotion carries the day. And this does seem to be something that a lot of critics here are taking to heart, doing phenomenally well at the box office, as we all know as well. More than $600 million worldwide now, $630 million, I think, in, in uh, less than a week. But people really, really responded to it. And there's a lot of sentimental attachment. So it's got to be 10 best feature nominees this year, hasn't it, this season? So let's see if it gets a, gets a place on that list. There's always a wild card. Maybe this could be it. And also a, a number of the films that are strong, you know, considered to be strongly in contention seem to be slightly stumbling at the box office. And I, I wonder whether that could hamper anyone's chances when Academy voters... Obviously, it's not it's not a box office contest, but I have often observed that when films are you know released widely and then clearly seen to fail at the box office, and I think Nightmare Alley is one that really didn't open at the level that people were expecting. I kind of wonder whether that does sometimes hurt the chances of a film in the minds of the academy of some academy voters, certainly studio executives, producers, a whole swathe of people who are, you know, perhaps viewing the world a little bit through that prism. Yeah, it's, that's interesting uh, comment, Charles, because that also, in the studio's eyes, might sort of give an unfair advantage to the streamers with Netflix and Amazon not necessarily having to rely on box office to sort of push their contenders, like, you know, Power of the Dog, obviously, from Netflix being one of the one of the leading contenders. And it's interesting looking at the two, two of the Warner Brothers releases this year, Dune, which obviously was a big theatrical success story internationally, globally, made a lot of money all around the world. And King Richard, which went out day and day on HBO Max, but really stumbled at the box office in, in North America, failing to make, I think, what they had hoped to make in, in its opening weekend and, and not really accruing much since then. Do we think that that helps Dune in terms of its own Oscar journey or BAFTA journey? And does it hurt King Richard, the fact that it did stumble at the box office in the way that it did? What do you think, Jeremy? I think Dune is looking very strong across the board. I don't think it's got any problems in terms of its trajectory right now. King Richard, yeah, that perception of box office underperformance, we think it doesn't help. And I suppose we can point to examples in the past. But if it's available on HBO Max, a lot of people are seeing it. It's popular. The question is, how do the Academy members see it? They can see it on the portal. I would say that the strongest categories are acting. And I think Will Smith for lead actor and Ingenue Ellis, superb supporting actress, are very strong. I don't think that's going to hurt them at all. But let's see what comes up in phase two. I know Warner Brothers are very high on those performances. And looking at the original score shortlist, Parallel Mothers is also on there for uh, Almodovar. So that must be a, a good sign for its chances further down the line as well. And Charles, we have to mention Lin-Manuel Miranda, don't we, in the best original song category? Yeah, I mean, he is, not, he is on the shortlist for his song for Encanto. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda has had a very, very busy year and uh, directed Tick, Tick, Boom. 
He was involved in In the Heights. He was involved in the animated feature Vivo, which Netflix released. But yeah, he's on the he's on the shortlist for his song for Encanto. And if he does win an Oscar this year, he will become the latest EGOT because he already has won an Emmy, a Grammy and a Tony. So he's a threat in multiple disciplines, Lin-Manuel Miranda. The ultimate ambition to become an EGOT. Good luck, <laughs> Lin-Manuel. Any, any final comments on the other shortlist categories? Well, I was going to, just going to say on song, I think that um, the Academy will be looking at this list with great interest and hoping that the songs from King Richard and The Harder They Fall are nominated because that, you know, involved both Beyonce and Jay-Z. So that would make for a very, very starry telecast should they be attending and performing. Absolutely. And we're, they're hoping for a live ceremony again this year, Jeremy. They're intending to return to the usual the usual spot for the Oscar ceremony. Yeah, which is going to be something everyone's looking forward to. And um, earlier this year, back in April, when they staged the Oscars at Union Station in downtown LA, they had recorded prior to that show the song nominees. They were singing on the terrace on top of the new Academy Museum, which is a spectacular backdrop. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Charles. Um, Beyonce and Jay-Z would uh, definitely... Um, drawing the viewers but yeah all hopes are that it's going to go ahead at the Dolby Cinema and we'll be getting back to some semblance of uh, normality. Well in terms of what's next in the voting schedule Oscar nomination voting begins on January 27th and ends on February 1st with nominations to be announced on February 8th. The Oscar award ceremony is set for March 27th so we look forward to seeing which of these films progresses to that final round of five nominees in each category. Thank you Jeremy, thank you Charles, very nice to have you on the podcast today. We're going to now hand over to Finn Halligan, who spoke to Jonas Poher Rasmussen last week about his animated feature documentary, Flea. We hope you enjoy. Thank you very much. Cheers, Matt. Thank you. I'm here with Jonas Poher Rasmussen, the director of Flea, a Danish animation, as we've just discussed in our earlier podcast. Jonas, so happy to be able to speak to you and so pleased that the film is doing so well in terms of what we've been speaking about in this podcast, which is awards. Congratulations on, on everything that's happened to it, really, in terms of recognition. Yeah, but thank you so much. It's really amazing. It started off with the film's very first exposure, really, in Sundance, where it won the Grand Jury Prize. And I guess at that point, you must have started to think about its future career in a different way from the way it went into Sundance. Or did you? Am I leading you here in this question? <laughs> no, but definitely. Like, like, and, and it was actually also selected for Cannes that got cancelled six months prior. So uh, definitely, you know, I had a feeling that we'd done something special that would probably get more recognition that my other films have done, definitely. And were you aware of the fact then that we're in at the moment that the film qualifies for awards, not just at festivals on the festival circuit where it's done incredibly well, but, you know, in terms of, of international and national awards, so that it qualifies in these three categories, which is really unusual, which is international language film, animation and documentary. When did that strike you? No, but quite quite late. You would think that we had planned it from the very beginning. Kind of like, okay, we can go for all three categories. But no, like you know, it wasn't until uh, I actually think it was not until uh, Neon came on board. Just after Sundance, we sold the film to Neon for U.S. distribution, and they kind of talked about, oh, but this is there's so many possibilities here. And that wasn't it wasn't until then I really realized. And how how do you think that so far? I mean, we, we have a way to go. We're sort of you know we're on the top of the crest of the wave now with the nominations and the shortlists and 
everything else like that. How do you think that's affecting the film? What's your perception of it now as opposed to where it was a year ago? No, but you know, it's, it's crazy to see how many, there's so many awards out there I didn't know about and so many different kind of <laughs> nominations, but it's, it's really amazing. And, you know, for me, every accolade the film gets, it's just nice to see that it gets a bigger and bigger audience, you know, that gets more and more awareness around the film, but also about what's going on in Afghanistan. I mean, it's a bit of a roller coaster for the film, as you say. And I was just thinking about how, how, in a way, it's almost like a charmed thing it's becoming because you start off and you're in the can that got cancelled. You know, great, we're in can gets cancelled, depression. And then Sundance and Sundance is online and no one knows whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Turns out that Sundance online is an amazing thing. Wins the jury prize. Then the whole world goes into lockdown. Then, you know, I see it again at London Film Festival. Then I start to see it in awards. I mean, what's your take on it no but it's really been a like a very very long roller coaster ride it's been a little surreal you know also because right now we're doing this and i'm also homeschooling my daughter because we have lockdown here again <laughs> again um, yeah and it's been a lot of that you know sundance i was also homeschooling my daughter and and being at sundance at the same time so it feels a little schizophrenic to you know like at night i was a movie maker in sundance and at day i was at home taking care of everything uh, that needs to be taken care of here. So it's it's been crazy. Yeah. Yes. But in a way, I think sort of, as you say, for the subject that you're trying to highlight in the film, or you are highlighting in the film, it's been fantastic. Do you think that the animation, the 2D sort of very simple animation that you've gone for, shall I say deceptively simple animation that you've gone for, do you think that's that makes it more accessible? We'll talk about the story later, which is, uh, you know, a, such a powerful story but does animation and, and I guess we ask this on lots of occasions when when animation stories do well is it like a delivery a delivery method to more people do you think do you, people find it more easy to accept it? a really tough story in a way yeah I think so I think I think because we're exposed to so many of these kind of stories all the time in the media I think for me at least you know I tend to block things out because if you take everything in like you would just lay flat in bed all day and not being able to get up because there's all these things going on in the world. So I tend to block out a lot of things, but because it's animation, because you don't have to relate to a, a real human face, and maybe also because it's something you kind of grew up with, you know, animation is kind of an accessible thing that you have from when you're a kid. I think you don't push it away in the same way. You don't block it out and you start to listen more because you don't have to relate to a human face on the other side. And then you actually listen to what he's saying. And I think it, it opens up the story a little more and it becomes more accessible, definitely. I mean, let's talk, I mean, as your friend, you know, um, I have read that he was he was happy with the film. And, you know, I mean, I guess when he made the film with you, I'm, I'm guessing that he didn't probably realize that it was going to become quite the international sort of success that it's, it's become. How did he relate to it when he saw his story in that way that we're talking about now, where the, it's, it's not him, but it is yeah. No, but he, he got very emotional about it. Like we had a screening with just the two of us when the film was kind of done and he got very emotional. But he also said that he didn't know if he got emotional because it was a good film, you know. It's hard for him to separate between uh, his own personal story and the filmmaking. So he was really happy when it premiered at Sundance to see how people could relate to the story. I think he was a little concerned that people wouldn't be able to relate. So that, that meant, you know, the world to him. And, you know, neither of us had expected all of this. When we started out, like the idea was to do like a 20 minute short animated documentary. And then when he kind of started sharing his testimony, it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And yeah, none of the people involved in the project ever thought we would be where we are today. 
And what's his feeling and what's your team's feelings on it, actually? Like you say, this kind of fractured sense you're in lockdown, but wow, it's something that's like a dream that's happening somewhere else. Yeah, totally. No, but everyone is very happy. And I mean, as well, you know, I think the fact that he's able to give a bit of nuance to the refugee story, because a lot of times the refugee story, you know, refugees are just described by what they need. And because this is a story told from the inside of a friendship, we're able to give a bit more nuance to it, you know? And yes, I mean, it's a refugee, but he's so much more. And you also see that in the film. So that's really important for him and for me as well, of course. Especially given what's happened in Afghanistan since the, the film came out, what it feels like it's just such a bad situation that, that hasn't, despite all that we know and despite all that we see, nothing has, has really improved and do you think that that sort of played into the to the reaction for it that people are more interested maybe it, yeah i think so you know it, it became sadly relevant again you know i wish it, it didn't but it did and of course it's it's great that that the film can help creating some perspective to what's going on in afghanistan now and it's you know it's just heartbreaking to see how history repeats itself and it's just been heartbreaking especially for me of course because you still have it reminds him of his own story a lot and he can see a new generation of, of Afghans getting pushed out of the country and being in the same limbo he was in for years and not being able to, to choose their own past in life. So it's, I think it's not one feeling, it's, it's, it's different feelings. Like I'm really happy that it creates some awareness, but I'm, I'm also sad that it's so relevant right now. I, yeah, I sort of agree with you. It is. It is something. That w- when I saw it, first of all, so moving and so important, you know. But I agree with you. The first time I saw it, it seemed like a historical document in a way, like very relevant to the current situation. But with regards to Afghanistan, it felt like it was about something that was in the past. And then you see it the second time, and you realize this isn't in the past. And and you also realize that the story that that a mean story that he's selling is is a story of so many more people. You you jolted out of your sort of laziness of thinking it's just about one situation and realizing it's about everyone really yeah. and, and that is that is sad that is sad yeah when you talk to him about doing this project can you take us to the time frame of it because it's, it's quite a long time isn't it Jonas it is and it was and you know it really all started you know when I met him when I was 15 years old when he arrived to my little village in Denmark my hometown, and he arrived all by himself from Afghanistan, stayed in foster care with a family around the corner. And we, you know, started meeting up at the bus stop every morning, going to high school, and became very good friends. And of course, already back then, I was curious about how and why he had gotten there, but he didn't want to talk about it. So my curiosity was there from the very beginning, you know, for 25 years. But then, I think 15 years ago, I asked him if I could do a radio documentary about his story, and he said no. He said he wasn't ready, but he also said that he knew that he would have to share his story at some point. And when he was ready, he would like to share it with me. So that's kind of where the process started, you know, just me thinking about this was something we could do together at some point. And then eight years ago, I was invited to this workshop here in Denmark called AniDocs, where they combine animators and documentary filmmakers to develop ideas for animated documentaries. And I thought, okay, but maybe this is the way to do it. And um, I met up with him and asked him, and he was really intrigued by the fact that he could be anonymous behind the animation because he didn't want to be victimized. He, he didn't feel like, being in the public eye with this story because what you see in the film is the very first time it talks about it. And so he really wants to, to, you know, still keep control over when he wants to talk about it and people should know about it when they meet him. So that's really where it started. And then in the beginning, we did the first interviews. I think I spent, I did like between 15, 20 interviews during the span of three or four years. And the first couple of interviews, we just did them at my place, just two of us. And 
we had a, an agreement that he could always walk out if it didn't work for him, like that he could say, but this isn't, this isn't working. And he, he could walk out just to make sure that he felt safe about doing it. So we spent, I think the first year, a year and a half or so, just trying it out. And then of course, when we had funding, we had to kind of look each other in the eyes and say, okay, but does, does this feel right? And he said, yeah, it feels right. And then we went on and, and did it. And then, you know, after the interviews, we went into editing uh, and production. And I think we were in production for like two years, two and a half years. You're talking about, I'm just curious about the process in terms of, you know, you did the interviews and does the animation give you more control? I mean, I guess you you have it scripted uh, in a way. I mean, it's, you have a scripted before you go, you're, you're looking at a different kind of piece, aren't you, from a documentary. Could you talk a little bit about the process of that? Yeah, but definitely, I think especially, you know, the editing process is different because, you know, normally in, in normal documentaries, you go out and you shoot something and then you bring it back to the editing room and you build the story from what you shot and you kind of become a slave of the material you got. Like if you don't have, you know, the close-up shot of the character in that sequence, then that's just too bad. You need to work around it. But here, because it's animation, you edit before you animate because you can't animate, you know, 40 hours of material. That's way too expensive. So you first you edit in these uh, rough, storyboards, which means that you always, in this room, you have a storyboard artist next to you. And so if you want that close-up shot in that sequence, you ask for it and then you get it. So there's another kind of precision in the storytelling in animation that you don't have. I, I, I haven't experienced that at least before in, in documentary. So the process is very different. It's just really an amazing experience. Are you now, because you were not before an animated person, <laughs> are you seduced by it? Are you, you know, um, that's where you're going? I guess this is the first time now a lot of people internationally will have come in contact with you. So I guess your next film is going to tell us whether or not, but could you, could you speak to that? No, but I would love to work in animation again. I, I, I really don't have a preference. I love working in animation. I also love working with docs and also narrative. But to me, it's really the story that kind of dictates the form. So if it makes sense, I would love to do animation again. And I have actually have an animated project that I'm thinking about. I'm trying to work on it. All of this flea uh, campaigning is a little distracting. But uh, when I have time, I, I have a couple of projects working, I'm working on. And it could be both documentary, it could be animation, it could also be narrative. I'm just going to ask you sort of generally for your thoughts of, on the international category. You know, I think when you're talking about the story of how how you met Amin and, you know, it just sort of seems like this is a film that was meant to be and a story comes out of it that goes to the world that could not have come any other way except for by that, that set of circumstances. It's brilliant. That's life. What do you think about the international category where countries nominate? I mean, you've been through the process now in Denmark where there was a short list and everything else like that. And some countries are better than other countries and some countries are you know um, reluctant to nominate films that don't say great things about their country and given that your story is an Afghanistan story made by a Danish filmmaker what's your overall feelings on that category that you're in the middle of it now uh, I don't know if I have strong feelings about it you know no to me it's just amazing to be a part of it I don't have much insight in how it works in different countries you know I don't know how it works here and as you said it's, it's quite open here and I think it's the first time uh, a doc has been picked, like a documentary has been picked for the best Danish film. So that's really an honor. And I'm just really happy to, to be in the mix. Well, we're happy to be the recipient of it. And look, I'm just going to say thank you. <laughs> thank you for the film. And thank you for spending time with us today. And as this, this wave kind of breaks, the best of luck to flee in all the categories, in every category that it's submitted in. Um, thank you very much, Jonas. Thank you so much. 
That brings us to the end of this episode of the Screen Podcast. Thank you to my colleagues Jeremy, Charles and Finn, and to our guest for today's podcast, Jonas Poher Rasmussen. And thank you very much for listening. Our next awards-themed episode will come out in January, so do keep an eye out for that. And keep up with the latest news from the international screen industries at ScreenDaily.com and also follow us on our Twitter feed at ScreenDaily. This episode was produced by Orlando Puffett. Tune in next time, and until then, we wish you a happy and healthy holiday season.